When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison. I could not be more excited to tell you that today we are celebrating the 100th episode of the uh, podcast Parenting the Adlerian Way. Pinch me. I can't believe that this idea that I came up with during the pandemic where I wanted to reach out, be helpful, stay connected myself. And now here we are 100 episodes later and I've had such tremendous feedback. I've met so many interesting people. It's been just an absolute joy. So thank you uh, for those that have been on this journey with me. And I really wanted to do something special for the 100th episode. And so I've been holding off this guest so that I could line it up to be the 100th episode. So I want to introduce you to Julia Lithcott Hames. And she is a power keg of a woman. She is the New York Times bestselling author of the book, How to Raise an Adult, which gave rise to the popular TED Talk. And her second book is the critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American, which illustrates her experience as a black and biracial person in white spaces. And then her third book that we're going to talk about today, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And it has been called A Groundbreakingly Frank Guide to Adulthood. So if you don't know Julie, she holds a degree from Stanford, Harvard Law, and the California College of Arts, and she currently serves on the boards of Black Women's Health Imperative, Narrative Magazine, and on the board of trustees at California College of the Arts. She serves on the advisory boards of LeanIn.org, Sir Kenneth Robinson Foundation, and the Baldwin for the Arts. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her partner, Dan, for over 30 years. 
and they're, she says, her itinerant young adults and also her mother. Uh, the information from her book was gleaned, and you'll hear in the interview that uh, pursues uh, from her time as being the dean and meeting so many young people that's helped formulate some of the ideas and the content for these books that so touched me that I was so moved to uh, to read and reach out to her and could not be more pleased that she agreed to come on my podcast for this 100th episode. What inspired you to write the first book or what cultural conditions, what were you seeing in your in your work and, and your experience that you felt you had to address this? So I'm here in the United States. I'm in California, Silicon Valley. Um, hello, Canada, waving at you. I know <laughs> listeners are Canadian because that's where you are. I know you have listeners in the States and around the world as well. Just want to put a pin in where I am on the map of the globe. Um, <clears throat> I was a dean at Stanford University, a very famous university, world known uh, here in Silicon Valley. And my role was dean of freshmen or to use your parlance, perhaps in the in Canada, dean of first years, <clears throat> um, the, the newest at the university at the undergraduate level. And my job was to care about them, and I did, by which I mean to take an interest in what they wanted out of their lives and to help them make better decisions and choices in furtherance of that, cope with the things that came their way that weren't so great, you know, to be rooting for them um, as they were developing further and further. And over the years, I, I began in that role in the early 2000s. I finished that role in 2012. I've now been gone from Stanford for 10 years. And what I'm describing, by the way, is not a Stanford problem, but a problem that people at universities all over my country and yours and other countries were noticing in those early years, the 2000s, like, wait a minute, we have some parents who want to have their air quotes, child's password to register them for class. Or we have parents who want to speak to their air quotes, child's teacher, a university professor about their displeasure with a grade or a mark or parents who were very concerned about a roommate problem. Um, we, in other words, we're beginning to see parents behaving as if they themselves were somehow sort of the student or they themselves were the, with the actor uh, charged with the agency to do something about it, which of course, uh, as you know, undermines the agency of the child. I didn't know about agency. I'm not a psychologist, a psychology person. I'm a lawyer originally who became a university dean and I care about humans. So I was observing these behaviors and correlating the over-involved parent with the seemingly less capable student. And I began to wonder what is happening here what's happening, what's not happening. And I learned about Albert Bandura's agency and self-efficacy work. And he's a Canadian. And I was like, Just oh, put a hey, plug in for the Canadians Canadian. there. This wise Canadian who's teaching us about self-efficacy. And I got super excited that there was a name for what I was seeing lacking. I will say I called it existential impotence. That was my non-scientific term. These students so accomplished on paper, so academically prepared, and yet so unfamiliar with their own self, their own ability to make a choice, their own ability to solve a problem, their own right to chart a path. They just seemed like high performance animals, like like thoroughbreds and, you know, about to run the Kentucky Derby, you know, or, or purebred dogs in a dog show, somebody else was acting upon them. And I was like, doesn't matter how incredibly performatively excellent you are, who are you actually? And do you know of your own capability and wherewithal 
to get things done and to make choices. Anyway, that's why I wrote the book, How to Raise an Adult. And then your turn, How to Be an Adult, is squarely for young people who are at that precipice trying to figure it out. Am I an adult? I don't know. I don't want to be. I kind of, you know, all of that uncertainty and concern. I'm there very compassionately saying, yeah, it's challenging, but you got this. I believe in you. Let's go. So Julie, even this word adulting, you use it in the book and and I've heard it out in sort of common parlance. I don't even think we had that word 10 years ago. I mean, this, this, I do believe that this is a modern phenomena. Where, where where did we lose our way? Where did the micromanaging and the agency, do you have any sense of, of why culturally that shifted? Yeah. So let me first give credit where it's due. Members of the millennial generation, the largest generation in American history, coined the term adulting. They turned the noun adult into a verb, into a way of being and a stage of life. And um, and they did it with this plaintive cry. I don't want to adult. I don't know how to adult. Adulting is hard. Adulting is scary. And then we saw a lot of memes about them and about that. And I'm here not critiquing them, but rather trying to serve and support them. Couple big things. First, parenting in your country and mine and other countries changed in the 80s, frankly, which led to what we saw college students doing differently in the late 90s and early 2000s. We began play dates, creating play instead of letting kids find each other and play. We began micromanaging at their homework. You know, have you done it? Have you turned it in? Did you do it right? Just trying to make sure every little moment of education was suitable according to our standards instead of trusting teacher and student able to be in this learning partnership. We began showing up on the sidelines of hockey practice and soccer practice and football practice and and at musical instrument practice. We began just attending their every move, constantly hovering and watching. And, and, you know, we got very clear that safety was now possible in cars. We can put them in car seats, which is good. And bike helmets need to be worn. Yes. And seatbelts need to be worn. Yes. All of that was new in the eighties, but it led to a mindset of we need to bubble wrap everything. Okay. We're going to now put bubble, bubble wrap on the corners and the drawers and so on so that they don't have an ouch. It led to, in other words, it's an overreach. Safety is of course important, but now we have created an entire environment. We've sort of preparing the the road for the kid instead of preparing the kid for the road with our constant watching and hovering. It feels loving and helpful, but it undermines their ability to take the small steps that become the bigger steps that become the stride that become the thriving. And um, so this was all a function of parenting shifts in the eighties. Helicopter parenting was named by two guys uh, whose names are presently eluding me, but they were the first in the late 80s to label the concept helicopter parenting. We now hear snowplow parenting, bubble wrap parenting. Like there's a bunch of terms that... Curling parenting. There's a good Canadian term. (laughs) It's a perfect metaphor visually for what's happening. Yeah, Yeah, clearing the path instead of preparing the child. Yeah. Yeah. So we did, we shifted, we shifted and we thought it was, uh, you know, I I appreciate that it was well-intentioned on behalf of parents, but we didn't think about what the, um, the, the collateral damage would actually be that arrived at your doorstep, I'm sure, as you're talking to these freshman students or first year university students where you would, where you would have seen this. 
Um, did yeah. I, I was so appreciative in your in your book about how first of all how much you shared your personal journey, yours and Dan's and your family's. Like you're very self-disclosing in these books. You're very human and real. And I, I like even though we're talking for the first time, I really felt like I got to know you in the book. So it is sort of exciting to you write authentically. But you also met so many students. Did you interview for this book, or or were these stories from the dean's chair that made their way to the books? Well, let me say this. First of all, I looked up in my book, I want to give credit to Foster Klein and Jim Fay, who coined the term helicopter parent in 1990. They're child development researchers, and they use this term to refer to a parent who hovers over a child in a way that runs counter to the parent's responsibility to, to raise a child to independence. 1990, Foster Klein and Jim Fay. Um, I did conduct interviews for the book. I'm glad you feel you know me through my books. I write narrative nonfiction, which means it's not just a nonfiction subject we're going to elucidate, but I'm going to try to bring in storytelling often from my own life because humans need stories in order to really get it and learn and, and feel seen and supported and like advised. And so I do tell on myself, I have made all the mistakes I tell other people not to do. There's a humility and a blunt frankness to my writing about this stuff because I have been the parent who is overparented and I'm actively deeply interested in my 23 and 21 year old in being capable adults. So I'm in it as a parent. I'm also an air quotes expert. I didn't interview students for the book. I interviewed, um, I knew a lot of students. I, of course, over my years, I had stories in my head of interactions I had had with them. I tried to protect the identity of anybody I was actually talking about by switching some of the non-essential details. The interviews were with people like, you know, when I was going from a hunch, like something's wrong, something's off, existential impotence, right? I didn't know about Adler, didn't know about Young or Freud or Ben. Dora at the point, I was like, something's off. What is it? Am I the only one noticing it? Let me scour the world. Let me go to places that have worked with young people historically for decades and ask them what's different. So I went to two profoundly different institutions that have been working with young adults. West Point, which is where future officers in the United States Army go to be educated and they've been educating people for hundreds of years. And the Peace which is an American invention in the Kennedy era, which sends Americans off to various countries to be of use in their 20s, you know, to serve and help and assist. And both of those institutions were happy to talk with me because they were like, let me tell you how parents are now all up in our business. At West Point, where we're educating future Army officers, we have parents saying, you're working kid too hard. <laughs> I mean, how do you expect to have a strong military if parents are like, please don't push little Johnny to do so many push-ups? You know? And then the Peace Corps was saying, we have people calling and saying, my child, who's 25, is sick, you know, or my child is struggling. Like, your child is an adult in the woods or the city or the wilds or whatever. And my, frankly, you know, we're counting on them to figure it out. And if they're really, really sick, we'll airlift them out. But come on, don't infantilize them. They're in the freaking Peace Corps. So those were two important touchstones that helped me. And there were plenty more interviews of experts and educators and employers. Employers reporting, we get calls from parents. I'm not happy with my child's performance review. Why didn't you give my child that job after they were an intern with you? And the employer's like, if your kid showed the initiative you're showing, I'd hire them. I'm not advocating for 
parents abandoning their children and letting them drown and walk into traffic. Sometimes people try to go there like, Julie, how could you? No, no, no. Don't be silly. Come on. We're supposed to protect and love and feed our kids and help them develop the skills they'll need so that they can thrive without us one day. That's the imperative, the biological imperative. When I'm dead, I can have confidence. I've successfully passed on my genes to people who know how to keep themselves alive and thrive and create the next generation. That's our imperative. And that's what we've lost sight of. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree wholeheartedly. So did you see a change and, and, you know, help me understand the timing of when you were writing the book and when the pandemic hit, because I felt there was a real change there too, in terms of testing uh, what these kids could handle in terms of resiliency and kids that did go off to colleges and universities and lived alone in dorms in ways that we weren't really meant to be, that weren't really representative of how we would want a college experience to go. Uh, and some kids managed and some kids fell apart. It was a real test. It was a real test of our resiliency. So was this book already underway when, when the pandemic hit? Your turn, the new one for young yes, adults. Yes, your yeah. turn. Sorry, yes, how yeah. to be an adult. So just so parents yeah. know, this is so, yeah. Yeah, this is the book oh, written to the audience and kids. Or to- it, came out, it came out during the pandemic. I couldn't write it. I was under contract to write it and didn't know that I had any authority to tell people how to live their best lives, even though I had signed a contract and was obligated. I just kept failing to write this book for three years. And finally, I got really clear. I channeled my old Dean voice about how I would speak with a young person with compassion and respect, but also energy and enthusiasm about their lives. And I channeled that into what became chapter five, which is called uh, Stop Pleasing Others. They have no idea who you are. And I sent it to my editor. She was like, I don't know what you changed, but this is working. Keep going. Once I had the formula right for a chapter, which then could lead to multiple chapters in a book, they they really then cracked the whip, so to speak. It was like, you need to get this book done. And I was like, but it's a pandemic. They're like, yeah, 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 get the book done. Um, so the, the book came was written during the pandemic when I was struggling with my mental health. So in the chapter on how to cope when the shit hits the fan, you know, I'm acknowledging like it's a pandemic and here I am. And I didn't even think I could write this book for you. And here I am trying to do my best, which is what we do. You know, I'm not perfect. Neither are you. Right. So um, but I think what you're asking is, did did the pandemic and what was happening to young people inform the advice in it? Not in a precise way, because I wasn't ready to opine on something we were only still experiencing with, you know, the reflection on what the pandemic has done to us will come in years and decades, right? The psychologists will tell us in studies in the future what the pandemic turned out to have done to us. And it hit everybody differently. And some young people thrived and some young people withered. And some went to college, as you've said, in a completely different format and they were alone and lonely, but still in college. And that wasn't any good. Some people liked the online learning aspect. You know, the kids I saw thrive anecdotally, observationally, were the ones who either came back home, said, I'm not doing school. You know, I'm coming home to shelter in place, but I'm going to learn something new. I'm going to be the one to go get groceries since I'm least likely to be sick from this thing. You know, I'm going to do my share. I'm going to behave like an adult in my childhood home. I'm not going to regress. Whereas others came home and they acted like and were treated like 15 year olds and maybe they regressed. So the, those who thrive were those who found new responsibilities for themselves, new ways to step up in the face of the challenge, focus on what I can do, not what I can't do. Another set to thrive were those who said, you know what, let me rent a place somewhere, you know, with a group of 
other people my age. We're going to each do our online learning from wherever we attend university, but we're going to be responsible for our rent, responsible for our food, responsible for our chores, create a podded community where we are, you know, um, in a mutual kind of accord with one another. And boy, is that adulting in a beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I... I, my practice, un, unfortunately, grew like crazy because we did have a lot of mel- mental health issues. But that's true. I would say I felt the same thing, Julie, that those people that that some of these fundamental pieces that we're trying to explain to parents proactively got tested. And the ones that had the strong foundational pieces um, made it through crisis. And, and a lot of people didn't know where there were some cracks on the foundations until it was under pressure and then things sort of imploded. And, uh, uh, you know, as challenging as that is, I also believe that breakdowns lead to breakthroughs. And like you said, we'll find out who grew, who grew after, who grew after this all hit them and they realized that they needed to do things this differently. We're not, we're not done understanding what, what happened. Um, so in, in the How to Be an Adult, you're writing now to the young adults, you're speaking to the people across the desk from you, the ones in the, you know, in the dorms, the, the bubbles with their, their friends that are stepping up and taking responsibility or trying to encourage them to. Uh, and, and the chapter headings, there's, there's so much content in here, but there is a few that I wanted to just ask you, you know, as to listeners to give them a sense of what juicy content they'd get if they pick up the book, either for themselves or, or buy it for, buy it for a young adult. Um, there's no, well, maybe I should ask you that. Did you have in mind a specific age? What, what where, do you, yeah. seven, 17 to 12, what would you say would be the little window? Yep. Uh, officially, in terms of public, the publisher, they say 18 to 34. I would, why, I would bring it down to a mature 15 plus high school, upper school um, aged out into adulting. I've had people well beyond 34 say they've read the book. And they were surprised that they saw themselves so clearly in it. And I think it's perfectly natural. The book is trying to be a mirror where you gaze into it and see what you need to see, whatever your age is. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Content for all. So let me just um, let me just ask you to give a couple of pearls of wisdom so people get a sense of, of what's in some of these, these chapters. So one you talked about in adulting, you talked about fending versus depending, which I thought was a good little distinction. <laughs> can, you, can you speak to, to that a bit? Yeah, I hear I had the uh, birds fledging the nest in mind. You know, birds are not mammals, but uh, nevertheless, they also are trying to raise their offspring to a point of being capable to fly literally if you're a bird. So the adult birds apparently at some point nudge the baby birds to force them out of the nest. Who would want to stay in the nest? It's cozy. You get fed. You're protected from the wind and the weather and predators, but a bird must fly or else it will never be able to get food for itself. And so the bird, the the parent birds have to push the babies out of the nest and hope to God that they can you know, spread those wings and fly and fly further. That's what fending is. It's the human equivalent of that. It's like, you know how to take care of business. You know how to look after your body, belongings, your bills, your obligations. Not perfectly, not great every time, but you wake up knowing it's on me. That's what fending is. Not to say you're going to be alone in life. You are going to attach your life to other humans and friendship and relationship and partnership and work. But each one of us must approach life knowing, ah, it's on me to get myself through this day, you know, in terms of fending, which is the very basic stuff. Yeah. Asterisk, unless you have significant special needs and are going to require 
people, family, or hired people to attend to your basic needs, you know, which is valid um, outside of that context of significant special needs, significant illness or conditions that are debilitating, you're expected to more or less be able to fend for yourself. Yeah, I, I always say, you know, to, to one's ability, and it's just that we tend to underestimate ability. <laughs> but but yes, yeah, there, there can be caps on that in, in, in people's situations for sure. Um, but then you, uh, dear, near and dear to my heart is the concept of being okay about making mistakes. And gosh, I hope p- people learn this, you know, very early in life. Uh, but that does tend to, to track through life. People that are mistake phobic, that feel they need to be perfect. It's part of that racehorse thoroughbred mentality. Uh, and you address that in the book so beautifully too. So, so can you share a little bit about that? Make, making peace with mistakes and imperfections. <laughs> Yeah. So we have a perfectionistic culture in many places that you feel you're only worthy of love or respect or opportunity if you're perfect all the time, which is just a mindset that will eat you up. And so I really try to throw that in the dumpster and say, instead of perfectionism, please embrace that the way forward that is rewarding and that will grow you to be the successful person you're trying to be is to take a mindset of learning and growing. I'm here to learn and grow every time I screw up. Okay. Wow. That was embarrassing, but uh, did I learn something? Yes. I'll do it differently. I'll never do that again. Like, great. That means you'll be stronger, more capable, more whatever next time. So I call, uh, I, I have this phrase, life's beautiful F words, failure, floundering, fumbling, flailing okay feedback even something we don't want but if we're willing to listen we learn from it this chapter three don't be you're not perfect is paired with chapter four be good which is on character if there's one thing you want to try to get perfect at fine let it be your character let you work hard at learning and growing to develop a character, which is the way you are with other humans. That means others feel safe, seen and supported in your presence. And we've those soft skills that are so important, just don't seem to grab the same attention in our, in our, uh, whatever our, our, our parenting priorities or our educational system and yet, you know, when we come out the other end of it lacking and we find out that, I don't know, I, uh, I think it was it um, Brooks who wrote the book on character in his recent survey of most, most liked character traits. Fame is now number two or something. Being famous is now the, the character trait that kids want. It's like, oh, where have we gone that fame got to number two? Or, oh, my word. Yeah, yeah. You know, I met David Brooks. Uh, we were both speaking on uh, the same platform in Dallas a couple of weeks back, and I got to meet him and tell him how much I appreciated his work. Yeah, it was it was good to meet him. And, you know, he's dismayed about the changes. He also does come across a bit as a boomer, like, OK, boomer. He wants the world to be like it was when he was young. And I think it's imperative on those of us who do have a platform to be sure that we're keeping up with time. So, you know, I could be someone like in my day, kids played freely outside. Well, yeah, that was the 70s. Things have really changed. How can we adapt the benefits that we know are associated with that to today's realities and and have confidence that our advice is is keeping up? So for whatever reason, David Brooks is dismayed that fame is number two. I am as well. When did we become a culture that 
revered famous people instead of revering really good people. Um, it used to be that college students said they wanted to come to college. Their number one objective was to grow their minds and be of service. And now it's, you know, to get rich and get ahead. So we've we've lost our way in terms of the values we're instilling in kids or really the messages we're sending around what a successful life is. I think, right, what is success? To me, success is I've figured my shit out. I know who I am what my talents are, what my passions are. I'm going to forge a life that uses those two things. What am I good at? What do I love? Let me go do work that is consistent and sonorous with that. Success Success isn't an amount of money. I mean, we need a certain amount of money to pay our bills, but often the jobs that pay the most are the most excruciating. They have to pay that much to come to work, right? Whereas the job you love, like teaching another human being in the fourth grade, is so intrinsically rewarding. You get paid, but also the work itself is so juicy and, and wonderful, uh, which is why you show up. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah, Re- redefining what that success is and having kids believe it because, you know, society, I'm not wagging again the, the finger at parents, but, you know, we really do as, as a cultural backdrop or the wallpaper of their lives say that everything is about progressing. If you go to swim lessons, you go from being a goldfish to a guppy to a shark to a whatever. Everything is these measures in these progress, progress at this this pace. And, you know, it's, you know, we've, uh, we've, we've, taught them to look at the marks and look at the outcome and impress people. And it's a lot of early grooming. It's no wonder that now we have to undo all that thinking when they get to adulthood. And we sort of say, oh, except for that, you're going to be miserable. You know, you'll be whatever, you'll be rich and famous, but you'll actually have depression and (laughs) and undo everything. Right. What if our school said, okay, we want you to uh, go from level and level B to level C and D in math or English or whatever language or science or history or in swimming, like, but along with that or, and we expect you to becoming more responsible for yourself and more accountable when things don't go right. And uh, we want you to be developing graciousness with others and patience. And like, what if we had a, if not a curriculum around that, a rubric that measured as you grow chronologically, we these traits of character, ways of being to be things you get better and better at too. What if we measured that? What if the university said, you know, we have a character test? <laughs> I mean, I don't know that any that one such thing exists, but what if it did? I want to live in that world with you. Me too. <laughs> that's where we need to go. That's, that's really where we need to go. Um, another chapter I'd like you to speak to, uh, uh, which is near and dear to my heart is, um, you talk about talk to strangers, which again speaks to this cultural shift where we we really gave kids this message that strangers were scary and stranger danger, and we really need to undo some early teachings and we really need to revisit that idea. <laughs> so I'll let I'll let you embellish on that. But I loved 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 that chapter. I'm so glad. Thank you uh, for appreciating the chapter headings and. I'm staring now at the chapter myself, this is chapter seven, because I really did try to have a chapter heading and then a subheading that explained it. And then an epigraph, the quote that serves it. So chapter seven is start talking to strangers. Uh, Subtitle, humans are key to your survival. Epigraph, don't talk to strangers. And then the quote is attributed to everyone. And Right. So at some point we decided, oh my God, strangers are out there and they're awful. 
and a tiny, tiny number of strangers are awful, but the vast majority of humans are perfectly fine. And a lot of them are even wonderful. And we've raised now two generations of young who will not respond to you when you walk past them on a sidewalk and say, hello, good morning. They just look the other way. So they haven't learned manners when it comes to dealing with strangers. They haven't learned the etiquette of how you interact with somebody you don't know. Um, we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, that they're afraid to talk to a barista in a coffee shop. We hear this constantly. I'm sure you hear it in your practice. Like, I can't, right? The anxiety around social interactions is partly, has to be, I'm assuming, partly due to the fact that we prevent them from engaging with the world. And then we unleash them in the world. And of course, they're terrified. And um, so in that chapter, I'm trying to help people appreciate why the research around why being able to be connected to other humans, deepening of relationships and connections is essential for our wellness. There's research that shows that. And I'm trying to teach people how to do it, whether it's neighbors or the barista or your coworker or your friends or your lovers, like how to get better at humaning. Even just that with the spike that we've seen in anxiety, uh, you know, I, I just sort of generally whatever, there's so many different types of anxiety, but I'll say, you know, somewhere in the in the core of all that is that there's a perception that the world is threatening and that you're not capable of handling the size of the threat that's in front of you. And it's incredibly subjective perception on both of those evaluations. But yeah. the, the idea that that the world is threatening is so easily changed by actually getting out there and saying, no, you know what? Your teachers don't want to flunk you. They want to pass you. No, the barista wants to get your coffee order right. The guy on the street does want to help you find out where the next subway stop is. And he will take a minute to point you in the right direction. Go test it out. And, and yeah, sure. It, I, I agree with you that down the road that becomes networking, which I don't know, sort of became a bit of a dirty word somehow. It's, it's you know, uh, like, oh, who you know is going to get you ahead. But it's all of it is networking. That's what I love. Your premise was everything's net networking is meeting your neighbor and saying, where's the cheapest place to get groceries? And your neighbor's going to say, you know, over here. Although, again, can I tell you, I loved your story of moving into your neighborhood and not having the warm, cozy feel and how you address that individually. That was a beautiful example of it. Not all unfurling necessarily beautiful and still coping. Yeah. And being the person who could behave differently learning from it and saying, well, I can't change them, but I'm in charge of me. If I try, what can I do? So we just had a great neighbor gathering, uh, new neighbors moved in little kid, just like, you know, baby, that's how we were when we moved in 20 years ago. And we just had an outdoor backyard gathering and, uh, 14 houses on the street, people from 10 of the houses showed up. I had name tags because whether you have memory issues or you're the newcomer, or you just are embarrassed that you met this person five years ago and you can't remember their name anymore everyone benefits from name tags. So uh, we had an amazing backyard convo facilitated by my 23 year old son, who's a camp counselor and really good at, at just being human with humans. And it was a beautiful, beautiful gathering. And uh, I tried to offer to my neighbors what wasn't necessarily offered us when we arrived. Yeah. And I, in, inspired from reading your book, even though I'm in regular contact with the woman at my little grocery store where I pick up my fruits and vegetables and the woman who lives in the building beside me, I, 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 I talk to her almost every day. 
And I didn't, I never actually stopped to say, do you know, we talk every morning. I don't know what your name is. And I thought enough of this. I've asked. So now, so now I know that <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, and we need to do so to your point, I, I'm 59. So this book, this book is inspirational and adulting all the way, all the way through. I thought that was such an important, uh, such an important uh, chapter. Uh, you talk about money, which I think is really important. I think we're going to have a bigger conversation about that since so many people, we, we were impacted in Canada, not to the same extent as, as uh, in America. Um, and you talked about how, how, to, how to cope when the shit hits the fan. Do you have something from the, the coping chapter that you want to make sure that people hear? And again, I'm just inspiring people to know that there's so many nuggets yeah. of information for people to pick up this book. But one about coping would be really great. Yeah. Let me say that um, the chapter pairing here is nine and 10. Nine is take good care of yourself. Uh, everyone's dealing with something. Uh, and that's about your conditions and situations and diagnoses and differences and difficulties, identities uh, that you may carry that are challenging. And then 10 is uh, how to cope when the shit hits the fan. So this is the part of the book where it's acknowledging real challenges, internal and external. And um you know, I think the takeaway there, if I pair them together for how to cope, it's be able to ask for help. You know, when the natural disaster happens, when the pandemic hits, when you lose your job, when there's a violent act in your life, when, you know, what have you, somebody dies or you you are encountering your own addiction you know, you go to jail, like whatever it is. And let's just say each chapter ends with stories of humans whose life illustrates what the point we're trying to offer. Um, there's a lot of storytelling of other people's lives in this book, right? At being able to ask for help, you know, being able to figure, and this is why we need humans. This is why we need to have some, a few very good relationships, the people we can call when everything has gone to hell. But it pairs with chapter nine on take good care because it's, you got to own your situation. You got to know I've got this situation and in order to thrive in the face of it. I need what sleep meds, therapy, rest, focus, whatever it is like it's valid. It's you learn who you are, love who you are, support your own self and being able to thrive. And, uh, you know, being able to ask for help when you need it also goes into self-care, like do as much as you can for yourself, but, be able to ask for guidance, assistance, advice, rather than feel like you have to go it alone. And then you're eight miles down the road, you know, you're worn out. And if only you'd ask for help at mile one, you know, maybe you'd be in a much better place. Mm. You know, I think about my, my own daughter who uh, had a tough start at university and she decided she, she didn't know what, what was making it tough, but she decided she couldn't go on. She came home for Christmas and dropped out and took a year off. And she really thought she'd, you know, her, her at that time, the perspective on her life was, was such that she's, she'd really messed up. She thought this was an ir irrecoverable decision and mistake. And when she finally got herself planted in a better university and in better environment and a different program, and then heard all the stories like the ones you write about in the book, where she said, do you know, I'm not the only one who took a year off. Do you know, I'm not the only one who switched their major. Do you know, I'm not the, but you know, when you're 20 years old and your life experience is rather short and you haven't had a lot of time at a autonomy and, and decision-making, and it's been sort of pl plotted out for you since kindergarten through to grade 12, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to have that perspective. And so, I, you know, I, I wish she would have heard more stories prior to having her first 
sort of needing for support assistance, redirection, change of life path without it feeling so what felt really catastrophic for her at the time. I'm sorry your daughter went through that. I'm happy she's in a better place. I'm glad she knows she's not alone. My eldest left university after two years and gives me permission to share that. He had a mental health crisis. Then a pandemic started. He came home to be with us. And he's been working on rebuilding his sense of mental health and wellness. Attached, of course, is his sense of self, right? We've been working on repatterning with him so we don't act like he's fragile and can't handle things. But instead, to be able to say, this sounds hard. I'm here if you need me. But you know what? You do hard things. I remember when we made that shift and he just lit up like they believe I can instead of all the helpful over accommodating that was like, oh, you can't. So we won't. We'll handle it for you. And, um, you know, he's now got a job as an aide for kids with special needs in our local school district where they say he's amazing at it and talented. And he's just really coming back into himself, which is so beautiful to see. So yeah. beautiful. Oh, thank thank you for, for sharing that story. Yeah, to, to give hope and inspiration to people. We all have our journeys and we all have our potholes and our, uh, with the right tools we make it through. Um, I found this book so inspirational. I, I can't thank you enough. Is, is there, I mean, I'm obviously, I'm going to, you know, put links in the show notes for people so that they can buy it and dig into it and find out more about you. But let me turn this to you. Do you have closing words, things that you want to make sure people know about this contribution in either of the books that you wrote? Um, and, and let me give you a moment if you're speaking somewhere or, or you, you, something that you want to give a shout out to so that I can make sure that you have your, your moment here. <laughs> I appreciate that so much, Allison. Um, Look, I root for humans. I'm trying to help humans thrive. My books are all in furtherance of that. This newest book is on adulting, which is the stage of life you're you're in if you survived childhood. So it's a span of decades. It's a big book, therefore, as you well know, to try to make the content as broadly available as possible. This book is officially now a course offered by TED. The people that do TED Talks have a new venture called TED Courses. And I have developed with them a course that's asynchronous online that uses much of the material in this book. Not all of it. Uh, It's uh, the nuggets of this book in video format, me teaching, talking, and then activities that they've very thoughtfully put together to reflect uh, on the content. And it's newly out. It's 49 bucks for a four-week course that you take at your own pace over, you sign up, it starts every four weeks, but you don't have to attend a class with everybody else watching. And I'm so proud of this work. I hope people will check it out. If you're a visual learner, if you want something that's more interactive than a book, check out this TED course. If you just Google my name and TED course, you'll find it. Um, so that's what my most recent thing I'm proudest of. And uh, But I also invite people to follow me on social. I'm Jay Lifcott Hames everywhere on social media. Sign up, follow me, interact. I like to reply. I will listen. You can disagree with me. That's fine. I will reply. And then I have a blog called Julie's Pod, which is where I open up. Just Google Julie's Pod. It's an online blog space where I um, open up about the things that are challenging in my life or that I'm observing or feeling or fearing. And I'm just trying to model that when we're vulnerable and authentic and real, we can really connect beautifully with our fellow humans who want to know that they're going to be okay. 
it was so clear to me from looking at your website that messaging about you being about humans and uh, uh, that just bounces off everything that you do. So, you know, we, we've introduced you to this podcast audience as this subsection of this much bigger umbrella of the juicy goodness that you bring the world. And I'm so grateful that you took the time to, to chat with me today. And thank you again for the contribution of the books. Um, and hopefully we'll have another topic and we'll stay in touch online and, and have more opportunities together in the future. I look forward to it. I'm grateful for uh, the opportunity to be in conversation with you. And I want to just thank everyone who's listened for staying with us. I hope you got something out of this and notice what came up for you as um, Allison and I spoke, like what came up for you? That's important. It's a clue from you to you about something you might want to, you know, noodle on going forward. Beautiful. All the best. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast, so thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.